Gresham College presents Under the Sea, What's Happening in Our Oceans by Professor Carolyn Roberts. Um, welcome this evening and welcome to, for the purposes of the later broadcasts, uh, the many online viewers that Gresham Lectures um, attract these days. Tonight I want to talk about the Earth's ocean environment and I'm hoping to surprise and delight you as well as challenging you with some of the issues that are problematic for oceans. I want to look too at some of the potential solutions to these problems and perhaps to provoke you to think about the problems in a more critical and connected way. Environmental scientists, as I'm sure you're aware, are finding increasing evidence of human-induced damage to oceans at vast scale. Destruction of fish and coral ecosystems and massive gyrating pools of plastic refuse, for example. Moreover, we may be storing up heat and trouble for ourselves in relation to future sea level changes. So I want to look at the attempts that are being made to reduce the footprint of human activity on the oceans and whether they can succeed in restoring the damage to the largest living space on Earth. Now, I use the word living space advisedly since significant numbers of architects are now seeing floating ocean-going cities in international waters as an answer to the problems of crowding in major conurbations, a challenge which I'm going to look at in more detail in my next talk on, on megacities. I gather, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I gather that there might be tax advantages to a perennially floating existence, and um, some would argue that there would be freedom from what is seen as burdensome regulation, and also the and I'm quoting here from some of the promotional material, the ability to pursue enterprises that would be impossible on shore, whatever those might be. Um, I, I kind of thought that might be something for the Gresham Professor of Commerce rather than me to contemplate. But the, the pictures here show some of the recent designs for some of these ocean-going communities, and personally, I can't help thinking they look rather limiting. And even if they were inhabited solely by wealthy text tax exiles, one wonders where the food and the water would come from. Uh, not cattle ranching, I don't think. Um, the, early, the early ones are supposed to be, uh, or likely to be converted ships, apparently, but the experts, and there is an institute for these things, the Seasteading Institute, which is on the west coast of the United States, they suggest that semi-submersible floating cities would be more stable in the face of changeable weather and currents. Perhaps. Uh, I think there is one of them. Perhaps I can't remember. Yes, the one on the bottom right is rather more like a... Or, no, the one above that, the one on the right, is a semi-submersible one. Um, I think the point about this is that oceans are a resource, and a valuable one at that, not only for living space, but for other things too, and that leads to differences of opinion. The, uh, there's lots of blogs about these things, I should say, and I like the, the one here, the quote here. I want the first one to be named Rapture. That's good. Right. Um, closer to home, of course, in terms of controversy, there's been recent discussion over the potential of Swansea Bay for generating renewable tidal energy. And it highlights the conflicts that can arise when human need for energy interacts with the ecological interests of various other species, including bird life, which is a theme that I'll return to later on. There are lots of 
sites around the UK which may be suitable for tidal barrages. The, the map on the, on the right shows some of them. And I'm quite a fan, actually. Conversely, oceans are probably the least known major component of the Earth's environment. In times past, they were the mysterious location of dragons and other terrible and terrifying beasts, as if il illustrated on these historic charts from the 16th and 17th century. This one's the 16th century one, I think, showing uh, Nova Scotia, I think it is. Even today, we can be extremely surprised. Sorry, there's another one here. Yeah, a little bit later, this one, 17th century map. Again, it's got the unknown dragons and beasts in the, floating around in the ocean. Now, we can still be surprised today by things that we find, some of which are terrifying. All of the things that we see on here are deadly, actually. Some of them look quite cute. I'm rather clean on the puffer fish. Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but that looks rather nice, and even the stingray looks quite friendly. But they are actually deadly. And um, things like this are quite significant as well. This is a measurement taken in February 2013 at an uh, automated buoy by the World Meteorological Organization. It was a record-breaking 19-metre wave in the North Atlantic. Actually, it was a series of waves, not just one, not just a random wave. It was a series over a 20-minute period, which is the sort of apocryphal size formally dismissed as a, as a sailor's tall story. In fact, the buoy is part of the Marine Automatic Weather Stations network that includes ships and satellite imagery as well. Um, and I think, actually, I was smiling to myself because I think that could be, give the libertarian residents of some of those floating cities something to think about if they strayed away from the warmer climates of the American West Coast. So that's on the surface. When we pass below the surface, there's a much greater level of ignorance of things that might only be a couple of meters, a couple of kilometers away. In practice, only about 10% of the ocean has ever been explored, and it comprises, according to the calculations not, not done by me, it, uh, done by Wikipedia apparently, it comprises about 1.3 billion cubic kilometers of space, the largest ecosystem on Earth. Now, the, the remaining 90% not explored has been um, the subject of speculation until very recently, and even the major configuration of the oceans with their complex volcanic ridges and abyssal trenches reflecting the slowly shifting patterns of plate tectonics only emerged in the last 60 years, which is very, very recent. The picture shows the... Um, the, 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 um, the larger picture there shows the um, bath escape used by Don Walsh and Jack Picard to get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which was 11 kilometres down, which happened for the first time only in 1960. And, um, in fact, they saw very little because the water apparently was milky from stirred-up sediment that didn't disperse, although they thought they saw some sort of halibut. I've put you a picture of a halibut there, not the one that they saw, I'm sure, but they weren't, they weren't certain what they'd seen at all. And in fact, that feat, that 1960 feat, has never been repeated. Uh, Richard Branson was intending to have a go in 2011. There was a lot of publicity about it. But in 2015, he quietly shelved his plan 
for something called Deep Flight Challenger, which is sitting on there, I think, in the upper left picture. Uh, it was going to fly to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Apparently, the submersible proved, the submersible proved unable to withstand the pressures at that depth, at least for repeat flights, and it developed some fractures. Even though we can walk on the moon, human technology is not yet good enough for us personally to traverse the ocean floor. I'm just thinking about this, actually, because I'm about to go to Bangladesh in Virgin Airways, and I was thinking about developing fractures in things that were flying. Anyway, I'm leaving this evening, actually. Um, so, um, so there's the pictures there of that. Um, other creatures do have the ability to withstand extreme pressures. Deep-sea frill sharks, for instance, are an example of one of the larger organisms that thrives at high pressures and about which relatively little is known. This particular specimen was found in shallow waters off Japan and it died shortly after being caught. There's another organism here that thrives on high pressures, usually in the darkest depths. It's a huge spider crab, um, found, again found close to Japan. Similarly, new discoveries are being found in other deep, dark and cold environments. Now, I put this one up because it's extraordinary. And when I was looking at it earlier, I, I, was, I was telling uh, some of the staff here that it almost reminded me of, a, of an auntie I used to have when I was young. Uh, she's, she's no longer with us. But uh, the, uh, the scale worm still is with us. And um, there are other organisms which were, which were photographed by uh, somebody called Alexander Semenov, who photographed a whole range of stunning organisms in the Arctic Ocean. He worked out of the White Sea Biological Station near the Arctic Circle for six, in the six months when it was ice-free. So we find in these newly explored areas of oceans all types of novel organisms of all sizes. That's a, a worm, but we also find oh, sorry, uh, this, which is a transparent sea cucumber. Transparency seems to be a common characteristic of deep water organisms. Um, we find things like this. Uh, it's a mollusk, which is bioluminescent. Um, sea slug. Uh, very beautiful starfish. A different photographer here. Um, very, very, very beautiful starfish. And other types of fish real, genuine fish, far too many to enumerate. I really like this one. This is a, a jellyfish, and um, that's the photograph of it moving, I think, is, is great. Um, so we also find um, things like, uh, some of these things have parasites on them. This is a jellyfish parasite. Uh, it's actually very, very small, actually rather tiny. Looks like something off Doctor Who, I think. Okay, and we also find mammals which are able to swim at depth as well. Wal uh, whales, dolphins, and walruses. And they are extraordinary because they have such complex social patterns which we're just starting to understand. Um, I particularly like, there were some re recent research findings by uh, Darren Croft from Exeter University that showed wild male orca whales. Orca whales are, are what are known commonly as killer whales. They're highly dependent on their mothers, and they return to their home pod after breeding. And the mothers live to be 90, 
but stopped reproducing at 30 in order to support their sons, but less so their daughters. And I was just thinking to myself, ladies, that sounds slightly familiar, doesn't it? Um, these diverse creatures move around mysteriously too, and in total, they colonise every uh, ecological niche. Including, uh, unexpectedly, close to the UK, where these, these are um, colourful jellyfish in the Irish Sea, uh, produced as an artwork, but I'm given to understand it's a genuine photograph. Now, um, since discovering last week from some American politicians' aid that alternative facts are at least uh, as acceptable as scientifically verified ones, I'm putting in this image, courtesy of <laughs> Disney, which is some alternative deep sea organisms. But actually, you can't really tell, can you? They're quite credible when you look at the previous ones. Okay, it's also important to not to admit microscopic organisms, on top of which rests the majority of the oceanic food chain. Recent discoveries by Danish scientists on the deep ocean, uh, Pacific Ocean floor include bacteria and the distinct single-celled archaea that lack a, uh, a nucleus. You can see they sit, there's a tree of life here, and they sit between bacteria and things like fungi, somewhere in between. Um, they lack a cell nucleus, and actually these things challenge our ability to understand what being alive is. They're found in vanishingly small numbers, maybe a thousand, these are, these are microscopic, maybe a thousand in a cubic metre of clay in the deep ocean. It's like looking for a, a needle in a haystack. And their metabolic processes, such as respiration, are so slow, which is a response to the uh, extremely limited food supplies, they're so far from nutrient sources, that it would take hundreds or even thousands of years for them to generate enough energy to reproduce. And some of them, consequently, are probably thousands of years old. I can't help thinking it's not much of a life, really. But anyway, that is a lot longer than the longest living vertebrate on Earth, which is likely to have been a Greenland shark, which was dated recently by Danish scientists. And they used the radiocarbon in the lenses of its eyes. I assume it was dead. It doesn't say, but uh, in the lenses of its eyes, it was dated at 392 years old. So that's pretty old as well. Those, um, those archaea, incidentally, they perked up a bit when they were um, fed with some kind of nutrient soup in the laboratory and, they, and, and divided. So, interestingly, when in the lab, they also discovered that those archaea, in turn, were host to some novel viruses themselves. So uh, again, something we know next to nothing about. So these, and what we call extremophiles, live in exceptionally hostile, or hostile to us, environments, and support global ecosystems in ways we don't yet understand. They live on the nutrients, by and large, generated from geologically slow processes. They're, suddenly, they're certainly, though, though, very important in the planetary-scale carbon recycling system on which we all rely. Kelp, for instance, and I haven't forgotten vegetation, I haven't said anything about it yet, but kelp is a crucial carbon store, perhaps more significant than tropical forests, but we know next to nothing about it. So, not only the, uh, do geological inputs influence the biosphere, but the converse is also true. 
animals, not just humans, influence chemical cycling in the oceans. We know that large mammals, those whales that we saw, for example, earlier, play a previously unknown role in recycling these nutrients from the ocean depths because they stir up sediment from the bed of the ocean and that sediment has fertilising potential. Particularly, it has phosphorus and that's a sought-after nutrient. And the stirring up by these large mammals allows those nutrients to disperse around the world in ways we'll look at in a minute. The Environmental Change Institute in Oxford University, for example, has recently established that the massive reduction in large oceanic mammals, such as whales, has reduced that capacity to a tiny fraction of what it was before these, what we might call, mass extinctions. Specific groups of extremophiles even live in the superheated acid environments close to mid-oceanic hydrothermal vents, where they are picture here, where they are very vulnerable to damage from deep-sea mining for metals such as copper, zinc and gold, which is done from drag lines or, and coming to an ocean area near us, I'm sure, remotely controlled ocean bed crawlers. Now, many of these areas of hydrothermal vents are very deep, and they were only discovered in 1977, which is very, very uh, late. I was going to say, was everybody in the room born by then? I'm not sure. Um, okay, so very, very, uh, very, very um, recent discoveries. And they, too, have their ocean, own uh, flora and fauna. Uh, it's not my auntie, but it's a, a similar sort of thing. Okay, it's not a attractive, is it, that one? Um, we can also say that, in terms of what we know, things are changing rapidly. So we see now, if you watch uh, David Attenborough on the television, we see people putting tags on things like sharks. Um, that's, this is an American study, this one, looking at the reef shark found in the Pacific Ocean, putting tags on them. You can see there is a, a tag in the, on, the, uh, uh, on this one here. And um, um, this one is a, a, a whale tracker. It's like a sort of security tag that a prisoner might have, which is just stuck onto it. And there's a handheld uh, tracking device that can be used to, to follow the whale and work out how deep they are diving, for example, um, without, I should say, killing them for scientific research, as one or two other nations do. Uh, and even things like penguins are now being tracked and part of the ocean ecosystem. They're now being tracked in ways which would not have been possible a few years ago. Turning to that, if we go back to early exploration of the oceans, it depended on very imprecise surveys from ships, which measured the bathymetry, the shape of the or depth of the ocean floor, and water temperatures by swinging the lead. Uh, or its equivalent, that's a, a sort of semi-automated way of swinging the lead on an American ship at the end of the 19th century. And painfully slowly, those observations were built up into generalised bathymetric maps. But it was only in the mid-20th century that a broader understanding of ocean topography based on sonar depth observations, again from ships and plate tectonics, developed. 
Scientists such as the largely unrecognised Dr. Marie Tharp of Columbia University, who's in the picture at the top there, um, were instrumental in that work, producing the familiar ocean floor map that now adorns almost every school's geography classroom. Beyond topography, whilst deep ocean exploration has enabled great advances in understanding the nature of sea floors, we are only now starting to understand the patterns of marine circulation of water and air across the planet and how those have changed over time. Observations made from boats, that we saw in the previous picture, were exceptionally time-consuming, and only six Atlantic transects have been, ever been made since the 1950s. Today, we're using autonomous underwater vehicles and robots to capture most of the imagery uh, and samples today, which minimise the need for people to travel for the seabed, to the seabed or for ships to drop samplers. Satellite-borne altimeters in com combination with drone vessels, drifters or wave gliders and buoys are enabling us to understand far more about the nature of the ocean and the way water of different characteristics moves around it. Previously, some Earth observation satellites, not this one, which is a new one, but previously some Earth observation satellites were actually turned off as they went over the ocean in order to save energy. But the newer ones, including some tiny micro-satellites, which are about the size of a bag of sugar, um, they're now recording sea levels, wave heights and water temperatures with astonishing precision. The, uh, this American uh, National Oceanograph Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration satellite, for instance, measures ocean meteorology from 36,000 kilometres up. And other satellites look specifically at oceans, and they can now allow calculations of things like heat exchange between the air and the ocean and other parameters such as biomass content, the content of green algae, for example, to be calculated. One of, uh, one of the UK's newest universities, the University of the Highlands and Islands, is something of a specialist in this type of oceanographic research. And their Environmental Research Institute, uh, which is researching wave power, using data from tiny Sarel satellite and a solar-powered wave glider. Th these, this is a picture of the wave glider here, the yellow thing. It can cover thousands of miles without fuel, collecting and transmitting data about meteorology, bathymetry, waves, water temperatures, currents, and fish stocks, interestingly, and sending that data back to a remote base. Other robotic craft can travel down to 6,000 metres below the sea level, including underneath floating ice sheets. Some of you will remember the, this one, the, the recently christened, and very recently christened, actually, Boaty McBoatface. Um, this, is a, this is not what you may have thought Boaty McBoatface was going to be. This is a long-range auto-sub that will be operating from the new research vessel RRS Sir David Attenborough in the Antarctic from next month. And it's an example managed by the National Ocean Oceanography Centre at Southampton University. I'm sure some people here will remember the controversy over the name. Do you? Yes? Yes, I, I think, um, I, I, I hate, to, hate to say this, but uh, it's the obvious dangers of holding a public referendum, I would say. <laughs> anyway, um, 
That's Boaty McBoatface, which will shed light on all sorts of interesting ocean responses. And um, th there's another one called Isis, actually, which is another deep-sea sub, again operated by Southampton, which can go down to the sea floor and document habitats and sea life three kilometres down. So in combination with the um, equipment on board the surface vessels, incredibly detailed information can be gathered remotely about the topography of the ocean floor and the objects upon it, natural or made by humans. So here's an example of the Sentinel satellite image of uh, ocean floor highs and lows mapped from that satellite. Uh, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a very accurate picture. And uh, that's at large scale, at planetary scale. If we focus down more, this is uh, an interesting one. This is uh, an image of a wreck that was picked up during what's called benthic mapping, high-resolution benthic mapping in Belfast Lock. Um, it's the wreck of the Rose 2, I think must have been a Second World War, First or Second World Warship. Um, and uh, that wasn't the intended subject of study here. The intended subject of study was um, identifying bed materials, uh, such as the map you can see here, where from the ship you could actually uh, determine what the bed material was, whether it was shell, which is a shell bank there in, uh, in dark blue at the bottom of the image, and uh, a sand bank uh, in white at the top here. The point about those is that we can, we can uh, do that analysis without the need for damaging the thing that we're trying to measure. We don't need to send down a grab sample, we can just look at it from the ocean surface. Um, I have to say, though, that, of course, the main reason that this is being explored is for commercial mineral resource extraction. Now, we need to contrast that plethora of new information about our oceans with the paucity of the data from the last century in order to grasp what scientific progress is now capable of delivering. And I have to say, it is really exciting. I'm not a, an oceanographer by training, but uh, in uh, 1959, revealing my age here, I was given a child's version of a book on oceans uh, written by one of the world's greatest environmentalists, Rachel Carson, who's the author of Silent Spring, which some of you will know about, I'm sure. Um, uh, so this, book was, this was a version of this book called The Sea Around Us, written especially for, for children, and it certainly got me interested. But what's in there bears no comparison to the information and understanding that we have today. There was nothing in there about ocean water circulation, uh, for example, which is the basis for understanding almost everything else. The, um, if we go back to those satellites, the, uh, the satellite imagery, imagery from Sentinel-3 the uh, satellite I mentioned earlier, can show tiny changes in altitude of the sea surface of 10 or 20 centimetres. And that tells us how warm and cold ocean currents are functioning in real time at this planetary scale. So the red on the image here, uh, so for example just here, the, the areas of red are areas where the sea surface is higher than the reference level. If you look closely, you can see that uh, some here, which is the start of what we call the Gulf Stream. I'll come back to that 
in a minute. Um, so we see these tiny, tiny changes in altitude. The, the, conversely, the blue is areas where the water is cooler and, the, and is lower than the reference level. So that image there is for March and April 2016, and you can see that the, the Gulf Stream and the other currents in the Southern Oceans, particularly uh, down here, which would otherwise be extremely difficult to explore. We see, um, if we scale up and make this more diagrammatic, we're starting to see now that, for example, general water circulation of the atmosphere is not only dynamic, but it has a complex pattern which reflects the atmospheric push and the location of major continents. So if we look, this is the warm water of the Gulf Stream coming across here. Um, tracking round, it goes back on itself under water. It cools and goes down through the Atlantic, right round here, or some of it goes up into the Indian Ocean, across the Pacific Ocean, and then round in this, uh, this, this looping fashion and, and back again. So amazingly complex ocean patterns are emerging. Focusing on the, um, on the Atlantic, it's been suggested that the, uh, the pattern, which is clearly influenced by the, uh, further south than this, by the blocking of the, uh, the position of the continents, doesn't allow the water to go past where Mexico and so on is. Um, but we now know that that, uh, that water is potentially being influenced by rapid ice sheet melting in Greenland. And again, uh, the, 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 the warmer water coming up here, uh, at the rate at which the Greenland ice sheet is melting, is having an influence on that return flow in what some people call the North Sea conveyor. Um, it's, um, it's actually, its technical name is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, but we'll, we won't, there won't be an exam on that later. Um, so we now know that that's quite sensitive, it brings heat from the tropics towards northern Europe. It's very seasonal. And we now know that, for example, between 2009 and 2010, it weakened very dramatically. It caused quite a, a scare amongst oceanographers. Uh, it, it did recover somewhat. But we can see that it's sensitive and volatile. And what we, what we also know now, which we didn't know immediately at the time, was that the decline in, that, in the strength the velocity and the, and the, and the heat content of, the, of, the, uh, 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 of that circulation, part, that part of the circulation, was linked to an unprecedented and rather surprising rise in sea level on the eastern seaboard of the United States, down here. So the, 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 the weakening of that 2009-2010 pattern, it, it goes, the, the flow goes on, on down here somewhere, is associated with sudden and rather a uh, rather surprising rise in sea level. So now, of course, we have to start incorporating that into our understanding of climate systems. This new robotic technology, and uh, I'm including satellites in that, has also been picked up by, of course, by the oil and gas industry, BP and others, to try and assist in monitoring oil spills at oceanic scale. And uh, I want to now turn my attention to a small range of ocean environmental challenges. First of all, building on our understanding of ocean patterns, let me turn first of all to 
issues of pollution, specifically plastic in the ocean, although there are, of course, challenges from all sorts of substances entering the waters, including pharmaceutical products, which we could have a whole lecture on that. Um, almost all the plastic ever produced is still with us. And according to research at the University of the Highlands and Islands again, about 8 million tonnes of plastic litter enters the ocean each year, which has a dramatic effect on marine life. It's estimated that 100,000 marine mammals and a million seabirds a year are killed by eating waste or becoming entangled in discarded plastic, including fishing nets, which make up 10% of the waste. By 2025, again the statistics on the projections, 2025, which is not very far away, there could be an estimated tonne, one tonne of plastic in the ocean for every three tonnes of fish. And yet, it could be recycled into socks and trainers. The biggest collection of plastic rubbish is found in the Northern Pacific. Uh, and uh, it's a direct result of ocean currents we're looking at a few minutes ago. But it consists of a vast number of different types of plastic, microscopic fragments of polymers. Now, I'll just show you a little cartoon which I want to show you here. Um, right, microbeads. Um, some of you probably, maybe, I don't know, used microbeads yourself today if you've used some toothpaste or some kind of skin exfoliant. Um, they're not good for the environment, they're not good for fish at all, but they collect in the Northern Pacific, in what we call the Northern Pacific gyre, um, there is a vast swirling mass of them. They, plastics tend to break down into the, uh, partly by the sun, by the forces in the water, into particles that are individually often too small to be seen by satellites, perhaps, let's say, less than five millimetres across. And they may even be invisible from boats. But sampling shows that these fragments were once a mixture of things, plastic bags, plastic bottle caps, plastic water bottles, and expanded polystyrene are the most common things. And they, they're different types of plastic, polyethylene, polypropylene, and so on. A small fraction of that, a very small fraction, is the plastic microbeads that appear in, in, in cosmetics and about which the UK government is currently prevaricating. There is a bill, there was a bill in Parliament to, to, to ban them and it's, it's not happened yet. Apparently from the UK we release 86 tonnes of microbeads of this unnecessary stuff into the ocean every year just from skin exfoliants. Um, along with the usual range of other materials. And most of that, as you see from the map here, most of that plastic from the UK probably floats northwestwards into the Arctic. This is, uh, this is just a, a, a model, a theoretical model of where that plastic goes. Um, it includes, actually, as well as those bottles and caps and so on, microfibers from artificial textiles in washing machines that don't have filters on them. So they go in as well. So you can see there the plastic moving, uh, again in a, in a model, plastic moving after a year, two years, five years, and, and, and 20 years. Elsewhere on the planet, even more plastic is produced per capita. Now this diagram shows two things. 
um, the, the circles there indicate the consumption of plastic materials per head. How much do we actually produce? So Japan, it, it's, it, you can see that that's 1980, the circle gets bigger, 2005, 2015. So the growth has slowed a little in Japan and in Europe, uh, uh, sorry, Japan and the States, uh, in Western Europe too. Um, and uh, before we moan about Asia, for example, we should note that their total consumption of plastics is much less than it is in this country. So that's the production. But the colour the, in the sea areas indicates the amount of plastic, or the density of plastic in the oceans. And this is where we see this North Pacific gyre. It's this area here in dark green, but there's an equivalent area in the North Atlantic and another one here uh, uh, in, the, in the South Atlantic as well, and probably something over here, but there's fewer producers over there. So the images there come from um, research that's been published recently, but these images come from work by Imperial College in London, not far from here, Grantham Institute, they produce quite a lot of work showing the destination of these plastics as well as their sources. I won't, uh, I won't go into all the details of this, it shows plastics being produced and where they go on the sea floor and so on, but what is rather more horrifying is this kind of image or this kind of image, this one taken in September 2009 in the Pacific or this one um, Again, uh, a rare bird, mistakenly, they're consuming plastic debris. Now, what it includes, the things show cigarette lighters, toothbrushes, tampon casings and all the rest of it. And research published last year, sorry, 2015, found that 90% of all seabirds had ingested plastic, 90%. And it makes up now 10% of their average body weight. It's also been found, of course, in turtles, in fish and dolphins and wrapped around organisms, effectively strangling them. Turtles, for example, seem to think that plastic bags are jellyfish, uh, and, and, which would be tasty. Now, there is research being done on why birds eat plastic. And some research in California, for example, scientists have established by field testing that the plastic becomes coated in algae which is then consumed by krill microorganism, which, microorganisms, which release a sulphur compound called dimethyl sulphide, or DMS. And DMS is also a trigger for some birds, like petrels and shearwaters. They associate it with the krill, which is one of their favourite foods, and they eat it. So what we're getting is bird junk food, almost. Since it can't be digested, the birds simply fill up and eventually die. The plastic is also a new floating habitat for some insects. So the water strider, for example, again, uh, is one of those. And again, that attracts birds and fish to consume it because it has the insects with it. Now, we could control this, of course, by reducing the amount of plastic we use. And in fact, that is the only sustainable way and not putting it into the sea. And we have made some progress. Tesco are banning microbeads, they may have done so already I think, and Unilever have said they will only use uh, biodegradable plastics, um, but there's no legislation yet in the UK 
I, I like the quote here, which came out of Davos, and it shows you how decision-making in Unilever is really made, doesn't it? It was the chief executive's wife who said that she didn't like the idea of birds eating plastic, so they are switching over. All the lobbying from others probably didn't have much effect, I suspect. New types of biodegradable plastic are being produced that break down under the influence of ultraviolet light into gases, or some of which just dissolve. Now, um, there were early types of biodegradable plastics, and indeed, three or four years ago, I was approached by a, a company making a form of biodegradable plastic, but the problem was it was simply tiny pieces of normal plastic with a soluble matrix. So what happened when it got wet? It just decomposed into plastic fragments, and the plastic fragments remained wasn't really biodegradable at all. Um, the recent ones are, can be used in, in, anaerobic, in, in, a, in a process called anaerobic digestion to, to develop power uh, and fertiliser. And there is, in fact, a new production plant opening in Birmingham this year which will produce a particular polymer to replace those food pouches, you know, that have cat food and stuff like that in it with the metal and plastic bond together bonded together. So that's on the way. That is genuinely biodegradable plastics. But overall, the amount of plastic being used globally is likely to double by 2025, not to reduce. So methods of recovery are now being considered. This one uh, is a high-profile project. It's a sort of, it's a trash-collecting ocean cleanup system piloted by the Dutch in 2013. And it basically what they're doing is they're towing barriers out into areas and they're targeting the northern Pacific where planes have spotted large pieces of plastic debris. And then they put these, the idea is they will put these floating barriers in the way and the currents will sweep the plastic into them where they will recover it and use it for something unspecified. Now, of course, you can see the problem with this. This is actually mostly for large lumps of plastic and it's only on plastic on the surface. So the total, uh, the total impact is perhaps questionable. Uh, they say it's going to be operational by 2020. Um, and there's been quite a lot of, sorry, this is the trial. The spray, I think, is just jubilation. I don't think it's anything to do with the process. <laughs> but um, there's the floating barrier and they were testing it in the North Sea. Um, so, other researchers have pointed out that it's actually much more effective to collect the waste closer to the shore, not to sail right across to this northern Pacific gyre area. But um, it's been suggested that, and I, the figures are something like, uh, there's an estimated 51 trillion plastic particles in the sea, and about a third of that mass could be removed by 2025 if it's targeted properly. But of course, that's, that's not really a sustainable solution. It needs, uh, we need to reduce the production of plastic and the consumption of it, trap it on land and reuse it in some way. And that's going to require legislation, which as yet we don't have. Second problem I want to touch on briefly is ocean warming. I'm just taking three problems here to, to look at particularly and quite briefly. The scientific evidence for human-induced climate change was the subject of an earlier lecture here, and I'm not going to repeat that. Whether or not the shift is the result of human activity in greenhouse gases, 
the uh, increasing greenhouse gases, the evidence of the recent temperature change is now very clear, as illustrated on this graph by NASA of mean surface temperature variability since 1880 when records began. Again, I'm not going to go into how that was constructed. But we also know that um, there are models forecasting into the future what will happen to ocean temperatures under different kinds of approximations and, and uh, different kinds of assumptions. This is two models here looking at what, will the, what would the implications of doubling carbon dioxide be on the top one, which shows everything's getting hotter. And then uh, the, the lower one is doubling uh, oxygen, uh, doubling carbon dioxide, but some other parameters changing as well. The problem you can see is that the simulations are quite difficult, uh, different. So in the case of the top one, we've got an overall oceanic warming. In the bottom one, large areas of the Pacific here, like, uh, if this model is correct, will be cooler than they are now. And the three boxes on here are, are areas where coral reefs are known to exist, which I'll come to in a second. So we know that things are changing. One of the ways in which we know they're changing is... Ooh, ah, there we go. Um, this is an actual satellite imagery strung together over a period of years. Uh, it's the Arctic ice cap, as you can see. And you can see the kind of pulsating annual cycle of ice caps. Uh, if you keep your eye on this area here, this is, the, uh, this, is, this is North America, and this is the Northwest Passage. And you, if you look carefully, you get a very good um, impression of what's happening, as well as that annual pulsating cycle of the growth of floating ice sheets and the retreat, you'll see why ships are now able to use the Northwest Passage, not all the year so far, but quite often, um, in a way which was not anticipated, of course, in, uh, in the 19th century. So remember, these are, these are genuine satellite images. It's not a simulation. It's an actual set of observations strung together by NASA. What it looks like, of course, closer up is something like that, where we see Arctic ice cracking. And um, for the Antarctic, interestingly, um, early explorers' logbooks from people like Shackleton and Scott have indicated a much more complex picture. We don't see the massive loss of volume of the ice cap that we see in, in, in the Arctic. We see only, so far, about a 14% loss in volume. And in fact, ice volume in Antarctica appeared to peak in the 1950s as compared with the uh, observations at the end of the 19th century. So it's much more complex picture in the south and, and apparently not so, not so severe. And that's almost certainly um, the northern and the southern hemispheres are reacting differently because of those giant planetary scale oceanic circulation patterns that we saw earlier. The news isn't all bad because Bristol University, for example, have established that melting Antarctic icebergs release nutrients, uh, particularly iron compounds, into the sea, and that boosts the growth of plankton, which take up 
some of the atmospheric carbon. So there's a kind of partly a self-regulating system. But it's not likely to be in balance with the losses. And in fact, observations by Japanese scientists show that the ocean is taking up less carbon dioxide than previously. On balance, it takes up about a quarter of all the uh, carbon dioxide that we release into the atmosphere. So we've got increasing sea temperatures. We've got implications for things like coral, um, pressure on coral reefs that protect many coastlines from the ravages of flooding. Now many carbonate reefs, calcium carbonate reefs, um, and, and, and I've put this picture up because this is something different. This is a cold water coral, not a, not a hot water coral or warm water coral. But many carbonate um, reefs are experiencing something called bleaching. So they're going white and the constituent microorganisms are dying. So there's research going on into that. Um, this, this is uh, American uh, research here. The, the problem with bleaching is that it can be part of the natural cycle of coral reefs, and it's associated too with things like aerosols, dust coming from volcanoes, uh, which actually protects coral reefs. So that if you have a volcano going off, you get more atmospheric dusts, and it protects them. And in fact, some people have suggested, well, let's put more aerosols up into the air and protect our coral reefs, which is a rather strange uh, management technique, I think. Um, but um, it can be part of natural cycles, and it's also associated with particular patterns of, of the El Nino um, sea current variation as well. So it's sometimes difficult to establish that bleaching of things like the Great Barrier Reef is actually the result of water temperature change, but it seems likely to be the case. And um, it has implications too, not only for the coral itself, which, which is an important thing, the, the, the structure of the coral becomes affected, and in fact, um, in these cold water species, the one we saw earlier, uh, this one, um, the cold water species, it becomes more brittle. It, it's like a sort of coral osteoporosis. It doesn't actually die, it just gets brittle and then collapses um, rather, than, uh, rather than dying. Um, but you can, too, get broader changes in the marine ecology. So you get new species coming in because the water temperature has changed. Uh, this picture of lionfish, and people are working out, well, can we, because they eat the coral, uh, can we trap them? There's people doing experiments with, with traps to try and trap the lionfish, which, of course, too, is not really the way, uh, the appropriate way of, of, of trying to uh, address the fundamental cause of the, uh, of the bleaching. There's some other research as well on water temperatures and uh, carbon dioxide. There's an interesting study in fish farms, using, using fish farms as a as a, as a laboratory by Exeter University that said that fish hearing, sight and smell is compromised. I don't know how they knew that, actually. But, uh, and uh, what happens is the fish start, for some unconscious, some inappropriate reason, start swimming towards predators, which is clearly not a very good plan. Um, finally, to finish off, just by reflecting for a minute um, on fish and overfishing, um, it just switch to this. Fish have also been a vital part of the world's human diet and 90% of all fisheries are in the developing world where population is increasing particularly rapidly, so the pressure is on. 
Fisheries are also an area where global legislation and enforcement is weak and governance, governance arrangements are very patchy. There's been some research by Richard Bailey in the Oxford Martin School which has produced some very interesting findings and ways of thinking about the questions. So if we take, for example, fish stocks in the northwest Atlantic, um, in the 1990s they fell dramatically. Uh, so this is fish something called fish abundance in the Atlantic cod from 1970 to, to uh, 2010. So you can see in the 70s and 60s, uh, 60s it was reasonably high. It dropped away dramatically to the, the mid-2000s. And that is not uh, an untypical um, situation for fisheries globally. We know quite a lot about this one. Um, Fishing yield, the, b the bottom diagram there, is the total catch for North Sea cod, which also has fallen with the productivity of the oceans. Now, fish are under pressure not only from fishing, but from, from wa ocean warming as well. But the, the real issue here is that the technology of fishing increased very quickly in the 1980s and 90s for exactly the same reasons as oceanographic science improved. So we had GPS, we had new sensors, all those kind of technologies that, that we talked about a few minutes ago. On top of that, we had vested interests, financial subsidies, and uncertainty, which produced a political environment in which international competition could thrive, plus an overarching view that there were plenty of fish in the sea. So as the boats became bigger and more sophisticated, and despite some regulation, ecosystems of fish were degraded and we developed something called a, tra a tragedy of the commons problem, a phrase which may be familiar uh, to some of you. So everyone took more or less what they wanted in case others got there first. That's basically how it works. Now, uh, Richard Bailey talks about the combination of high subtractability. So what's lost is lost. Once you've lost the fish, they're gone. And, it's, and difficult excludability. It's very difficult to stop people fishing because everybody can get to fish quite easily. And that's what's generated the problem. So as soon as the policy measures were put in place, let's say the regulation said boats have got to be shorter. So what happens? Well, boats evolve to be wider. Um, similarly, they said, well, you've got to cut the number of days that you can have at sea. So they just worked longer days. And so everything that happened maintained the status quo and catches um, were still taking the same proportion of the available material. Plus, on top of that, about fifth, a fifth of all estimated fish catches are illegal. So considerable damage has been done to North Atlantic fisheries and we're now in a position where we don't know if the ecosystems will fully recover. They may lock into a new, less productive situation. And I should say, with or without the agreements currently in force with Europe. Now, we can use some of the technology to identify these particularly valuable areas, whether they're particular species or, or more generally. And perhaps what is required is marine conservation areas where fishing and mineral extraction are prohibited. Uh, protected areas where fish and organisms can recover. And here, 
there are some successes. The UK has in fact been designating some of these. This, the, the diagram here is sh showing one in the Ross Sea, but there are some others being designated around the UK. And with the new technologies, that we, again, that we talked about earlier, we have a good way of policing them. We can spot uh, sea lights on boats from space. We can use radar from aircraft to see even tiny ships at sea because we can see the wake of the ship. And we can chip or tag boats just as we can tag whales so we know where they are all the time. So perhaps there is some optimism that the fish stocks will recover and reefs and other vulnerable systems will be protected. <coughs> Environmental journalist George Monbiot, who wrote powerfully in the Guardian newspaper last month, said that encounters with huge basking sharks and sunfish whilst canoeing off the Hebrides had triggered in him a raw set of feelings. He described it as a vestigial genetic memory from a time when ocean circumstances obviously directly shaped human lives. Less obviously today, ladies and gentlemen, I think they still do. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.